Having Sage approved audio for our car rides is a literal lifesaver for my nervous system. And I love making lists of podcasts to share with him when he's ready. I was so excited to hear about a new show called Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as MATH, M-A-T-H, geared toward the six plus crowd. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time traveling adventures. Episodes drop every Thursday and are about 15 minutes long, the perfect length for car rides and mealtimes and stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Welcome to Voices of Your Village. You're listening to episode 10. Oh my gosh, I am so psyched for this episode. After recording it, I literally like couldn't calm down. I was so pumped about it. Not only did I learn so much, uh, but I know that there are just so many amazing things that anyone who works with has comes across a tiny human can take away from this episode. I sat down with Sarah Friel. She is a speech language pathologist and she understands infant toddler preschool speech and language development better than I think any SLP I have ever encountered. She sees how connected our systems are and she gives such a clear outline and so many amazing tips for supporting tiny human language development right from infancy. This is an episode you will not want to miss. I'm so glad you're here today. Let's dive in. Welcome to Voices of Your Village, a place where parents, caregivers, teachers, and experts come to support one another on this wild ride of raising tiny humans. We combine decades of experience with the latest research to create the modern parenting village. Let's dive into honest conversation about real parenting challenges so it doesn't have to be this hard. I'm your host, sleep consultant, child development specialist, and passionate feminist, Alyssa Blass Campbell. Hey everyone, throughout my career in early childhood ed, I found that there's a large focus and understanding on preschool through second grade, while the infant toddler world remains underserved and undervalued. Yet we know that we form 80% of the brain by the time we turn three. I think some of this is expectation. What do we think infants and toddlers are capable of? So what do we expect from them? And when it comes to speech and language, I found a huge need for discussion about what those kids are capable of and what we're looking for and working on in order to support language development from the beginning. I'm so pumped to have met this brilliant speech and language pathologist who truly gets the world of infant-toddler language development. Sarah Friel is here with me today to explore the world of language in those tiny human brains. Sarah, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you here? Sure. I am a speech and language pathologist. Um, As you can probably tell from my accent, I am from London, England, and I have spent half of my career practicing in the UK. And because of lucky, fortunate circumstances, I found myself in um, on the east coast of the United States, and I have been practicing here for 15 years. Um, And I've been interested in 
early childhood and early language development throughout my career. So uh, I feel it's a, I'm in a great place now where I have a chance to um, work with OTs and other professionals in a collaborative sense, looking at the full range of the language and communication lifespan. I'd love to kind of start about start talking about the importance of language, like early on in life. Like, what does that look like with infants? Uh, I know for myself, there are so many times with, with babies that I really feel like I'm talking to myself, and it can be so hard. There are days that I've like spent with with just infants, and I'll find myself going to a coffee shop just to like have an adult interaction where someone responds with language. Um, <laughs> so, like. <laughs> How do we how do, how do we do that? What should we be doing with these babies to kind of promote that language from the beginning? Well, I love the fact that you um, intrinsically recognize that from the minute of pre-birth, babies are interacting with us. They respond through touch um, and they recognize the sounds of their parents um, from inside the womb. And so children, um, babies, um, pre-birth are already starting to develop what we would think of as attunement. And I think that those early stages are really focused on developing attunement, which isn't um, necessarily going to be verbal, but it's going to be through touch, through looking at ways that a baby can indicate that they are making connection with you. They might poke their tongue out, they might purse their lips, they might squeeze their fists. All of those um, little signs are a sign of, oh, I'm taking my turn. I know you're there. I know you're there for me. And I think building up that reciprocity is so important. And it it happens from day one. Um, And it was something that I really was not tuned into. One of the reasons I came in to the field of speech and language pathology was, um, you know, I'm a people who know me well know that I like to talk and they know that I like to talk a lot. And um, I remember when I was at university in Britain, my sister had um, her first child when I was a teenager at university. And I remember thinking, yeah, I'll go and visit the baby. Babies are okay. I like them once they're talking. And the minute I saw this baby aged at 48 hours, I was absolutely blown away by the communicative intent of this newborn. And it refocused my interest in um, communication to those really early years. Um, So it was a very visceral moment and I remember it well and that connectivity that I felt with this newborn baby that I was not expecting at all. Um, So building in that awareness and parents who, um, you know, who are not experiencing other difficulties around the time of the birth. So a mother could be feeling physically unwell. She might be having all sorts of hormonal changes that will um, bring about feelings of depression or just feeling physically tired. That can really suppress some of our ability to um, interact with an infant. However, knowing that those just physical touch and being close and holding a child, your bodies are going to start to build that attunement. And that's really one of the earliest stages of um, that infant-parent interaction. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. I like how you mentioned at the end there that, like, there are things that can prevent us from, like, having that connection in that, in that same way. Uh, I have even felt it 
in, in my job at work when I'm like busy and I'm doing things and there's a kid who's at my leg and pulling when I'm trying to change another diaper or whatever. And if I can get to a place where I can pause and just be there with that child, we can usually connect and communicate about whatever it is, whether whether it's verbal or nonverbal. Um, but sometimes having that time feels so hard uh, to, to be able to have that connection. But I think you're right, it's so important. And one of the ways that um, I found that really helped me through those early days of being a mother and having three children fairly close together and having feeling like, oh, I've got a toddler, I've got a preschooler, I've got a newborn, um, everyone wants a little slice of me. One of the big connectors for all of us was um, song. And mm. that's, even if you don't feel like you hold a tune particularly well, one of the great <laughs> things about song is it's a social routine and everybody can have a little bit of a an involvement. And so some of those tricky moments, for example, when a child doesn't like having their diaper changed is is having your diaper song. And even though the child might not enjoy it and they might cry all the way through it, you've got you not enjoying it, the baby not enjoying it, the toddler who's waiting for a slice of your attention feeling frustrated. But if you know that the diaper change is going to be done by the end of the song, it helps build a um, build that early self-regulation piece of, oh, I'm just holding on, just holding on to the end of the song. And then I know I'm going to get what I want. And it helps um, from, a, from birth. It helps to build in that sense of, OK, there's a beginning and a middle and an end to this. We're nearly at the end. And that's a really valuable little tool that I found helped me um, and keeping it playful for the toddler and using the rhythmical melody for the infant was something that I found, um, you know, really helped me through the, some of those difficult moments like diaper change or getting dressed. I love that. Uh, I love that so much. I love that you just connected the different systems, which I would love to dive into um, and kind of talk about like, how are the sensory system and your emotional regulation kind of all connected to this language development? Uh, I know, uh, you know, in my previous episode with Lori, we talked a little bit about how that sensory system uh, plays a role in terms of language development and emotional regulation from her perspective as the OT, and I'd love to hear it from yours as the SLP. Well, I think one of the... Um... One of the things that I noticed about moving to the U.S. and then working in a interdisciplinary way was that um, my training really prepared me for working with speech therapists, but it wasn't very mindful about that interdisciplinary approach. And so my opportunities to spread my um, um, broaden my understanding rather of um, the sensory system really helped me embed my understanding of language development because we're not really we don't feel like communicating unless we're feeling comfortable and if we're feeling comfortable then we need to know okay I'm my body feels comfortable I am not overwhelmed and helping a parent or helping myself as a therapist understand what a client's or a child's um, sensory system needs really helps me tune my language um, for that child and help them develop their language. So um, rhythmical movement 
can be very, very soothing and calming. And you can find, say, on a swing in a playground might be the best place to develop language development in a late talking toddler or um, using sensory play if children like the feeling of um, uh, touch on their skin with water or sand or Play-Doh or goop or whatever it is, those sorts of things can bring about language development because a child is having a particularly pleasurable sensory moment. So just like anybody, we feel like chatting when we're feeling comfortable. Um, and sometimes when children come to speech therapy, um, they don't feel like chatting. And so it's reading their bodies, reading what do they feel like doing right now? How can I play with them in a way they want to be played with? And maybe say to yourself, you know, we're into communication. We're not always into words. And know that you're communicating, but not always having to talk. It's not just about the words, um, because that can lead us to try to fish for words. And when we're fishing for words, then we don't often get really what we want from a child. We end up getting much shorter utterances or um, we, we tend to fix the agenda ourselves. Um, whereas if we are quiet and we see what interests the child and let them tell us what they need, often that's when communication and then words can be more forthcoming. I love that. That was one of my questions that I had was that like, I feel like we're very fixated on milestones in general, right? It gives us something to measure when uh, it can, uh, early childhood development takes so long, right? So we don't read to a child as an infant expecting them to read back or expecting them to read back to us the next day. We do it for, for the long-term development. And so I think there are times where we're just like waiting for these milestones, whether they're growth motor or language development or whatever. And I've had so many parents tell me like, oh, at 15 months, my kid had this many words or it's 12 months and they're not signing at all or they haven't said anything. And uh, I think, you know, it's easy to get fixated on those milestones to give us something to measure. And I think from the teacher side of things, we we have these milestones to kind of judge like, all right, are we seeing um, this communication happening? And if not, by certain ages, why? Right. So what I try to do is kind of take a step back and figure out the why. If a kid isn't talking to me at all by 18 months, why? Why aren't they using their words? What's kind of getting in their way here um, to prevent them from, from being able to communicate with me in that way um, or to move from, from signs to verbal language? What's, what's stopping that if there is anything? But there are other kids that I, I, I don't see the words come and I don't know, there's just something about it that it doesn't, I don't see a concern because I feel like ever, all the building blocks are there and the words are just going to come. And so I guess I'd love to hear from you, like what what the milestones are kind of there for and why they matter and what we're really looking for. I think you said it well, Alyssa, when you said if there are general communication skills or functional communication skills that are in place, that is really what is going to be very important um, long term in terms of language development. I think that we early on we want to be hearing children play with sound. Vocal play is a really important part of building the tools for communication. So even though your child might not have any words that you might call words, you do want them to be 
um, playing with sounds and babbling and making vowel sounds and consonant sounds. So a very silent child, a child who never vocalizes, even though they seem to be communicating a lot of what they need through gesture or situational um, context, um, you, that would be that would be a concern for me. So I'm always interested in, oh, is a child babbling? Now, if they're with a stranger or meeting me for the first time, then they may not be babbling. But I always like um, parents to be able to tell me, yes, from six months, they're starting to make some vowel sounds and beyond. And then eight months, they are making some consonant sounds. And um, they're really starting to put strings of babble together between eight and 12 months. So, so that I would say that is pretty important because if a child is completely silent, then they're not really giving their the tools of their of talking. So the mouth, the lips, the tongue. They're not really exercising and giving um, practicing movements. So we do want to see um, vocalizations. In terms of words, um, it, it can vary. Some people are tuned in and think golly, I know that my child is saying a word even though it doesn't sound like it. But when he says ba, it means he wants banana. And so, yes, he's using a real word. So I think what is a real word depends on the context and who's listening. Um, but it is important, I think, for us to, um, for a child to be starting to use some first words and have a handful of first words by about 15 months that you can actually understand. Um, so the reason why we want to know about these milestones, and they are they are variable from context to context, is um, is it just gives us a sense of when when should we start intervening? And I think from a speech therapist's point of view, we really want to support families in helpful things they can do at home. If a child is very silent, then I would say that would need some a speech therapy evaluation just to make sure that they don't have some kind of um, movement difficulties with their mouth. Um, um, and then we really want children to be using language and playing. So that's going to be another big indicator for me. And I think for, for from your part as a, um, a child specialist and uh, working in a school, I'm guessing that that's really what you're interested in looking at too. Yeah, exactly. And, one of the things that we really look at um, is when we see more language or more babbling versus other times. So you know, I have a classroom of nine toddlers and we have good ratios. So we often have four teachers in there. That's a lot of people in one room. Um, so I have some tiny humans who, when we're all together, we don't hear a lot of language from them, but we split up into small groups and all of a sudden that child is babbling all throughout the classroom. So we try to be mindful of, you know, all the different factors kind of going on around. Like if there's too much stimulation or they're, they're working on processing out too many other things around them, it might be very hard for them to engage in conversation. And so how can we build that confidence and that kind of language repertoire for them in small group form that they can then take into a large group? Because uh, ultimately, we also want them to be able to uh, kind of function and be able to have those conversations in those bigger groups down the road. Um, so we try to balance that a little bit in the classroom. And then we also, we get a lot of 
I actually had a, a, a friend ask this question and it, it resonated with me because I see it a lot as a toddler teacher. She said, my kiddo is pointing and saying, eh, at things. I know what he wants. And so I often give it to him. Will his language just come or is there something else that I should be doing? And this is a question I'd love to turn over to you because I think for us, Kind of at the beginning of the school year, that's something we'll, we'll respond to and we'll say, oh, you want your milk, um, and usually put the sign with it and, and then hand them their milk. But we have, you know, I said four adults in the classroom, and then we also, and some of them are, are college students. They work at a lab school, and so our college students don't necessarily know, like, how to respond in that way, and they'll often just, like, hand them their water when they point at where the water is. Um, without providing that language piece. And I'm wondering, like, how much of a difference does it make? Or is there anything additional that we should kind of be doing or being mindful of? I, I think you've said a couple of things there, which I think is really important. Being sensitive to the context and group size is hugely important for children's language development, particularly in a school setting. So we know that in our families, we can have whole family events when um, you're meeting people you haven't met for a while and everyone wants to see the toddler and they want to say, say hello, say hello to Auntie, Auntie Mary. And of course, your child is silent for the entire large family gathering and you're trying to convince people, oh, no, he, he says he says stuff. Um, but of course, he's not saying anything at a family gathering. And those situations are too overwhelming. And that's how it can be for a classroom. So bringing a child down to the one-on-one -on -one and playing games that don't require any language is a really nice way of saying, I'm connecting with you, but I'm not expecting you to say something. Games like mm. peekaboo. Um, so if a child is pointing to water and wanting it, you can, you, I think your idea of labeling it absolutely labeling the child's world and saying the things that saying the word that they can't say yet is really important um it's amazing when i find myself in um classroom situations or when i'm watching students who are learning to become speech pathologists how frequently we can overuse pronouns oh you want it oh okay the amount of times when i worked in early intervention i would hear parents say don't worry mommy do it Mummy, do it if their child's having a problem. And I'm saying it's the it. It's that verb you're not saying. And so mm. instead of saying mummy, do it. Oh, mummy can help. Mummy will open the lid. Um, and so very often we might find ourselves overusing pronouns. So your idea of using the noun is a really good, good idea. Um, the other thing that you can do, which is really valuable, is... If you think about, okay, the child saying nothing is the bottom rung of a ladder, and then the next rung up is saying, is pointing, and the next rung up after that is pointing and saying the word, then they have two rungs to go from saying nothing. So if they're pointing, you want to validate, oh, you want something. I see you pointing. Oh, and then you can kind of play dumb. Oh, oh, wait. Did you want the block or water? And so whatever they want, you put last. And that strategy is called a forced choice. So you're not saying, do you want water? Because if you say, do you want water? That's a yes, no question. And the answer to a yes, no question is either yes or no. And so you're queuing them up to just say a yes, no answer. Whereas, because if someone says, oh, would you like a coffee? You rarely say, yes, I would love a coffee. You usually just say, sure, or 
please. So you have to think, oh, what question am I asking or what am I doing and what am I expecting in return? So if you ask us, do you want the block or do you want water, knowing they want water, then you are firstly modeling the word water on its own. You're putting it on a pedestal by putting it at the end of the utterance. And finally, you are not asking them a yes, no question. They actually need to answer. So there's some functionality there. It's not a rhetorical question. Oh, you want water. Oh, you want a drink and hand it over so that then if they at least know and they look at you and then if their eyes look at the water, oh, you're looking at the water. You want the water. Okay, there's your water. Rather than, oh, you want some? Oh, there it is. There you go. Which is what we might hear ourselves saying in unguarded moments. So um, using words is really important and using them knowing, oh, I'm going to showcase that word by putting it at the end of my utterance. And that's what's going to make it easier. I love that. I love how you just framed that because as you said it, I was like, ah, that makes sense. But what I have found myself doing a lot of the time is saying like, oh, you could say water and then like signing water. And I don't know, I guess it's, it's probably not the best way to go about this. I guess it's the same probably as asking kids to use their words, which is a sentence that always makes me cringe a little bit um, because I feel like if they had the words, they would be using it. But in a sense, I'm probably doing the same, sending that same message with that you could say water because uh, they're probably like, I can't say water yet. <laughs> um, so I and love that it, you I think it's, it. it's, um, yeah, I think ahead. that, sorry to interrupt you, One another way to tweak what you say, and, you know, I don't think that any child is internally thinking, oh, boy, she's patronizing me again. Uh, she's she's telling me what I should say. No, I don't think that um, is harmful in any way. But in terms of building a conversation, I am I like to emphasize for the students I teach, it's we're not teaching a child to speak. We don't actively teach children to talk. What we do is we provide this language-rich environment, which then um, encourages them to suddenly, to not even to suddenly, to gradually join in with that whole conversation. Life is just a conversation. We don't say, okay, it's Tuesday morning, it's 9 a.m., we're, t- we're learning to talk today. Oh, now it's 10 o'clock. We're done learning to talk right now. Off you go. That's not what speech therapy is doing. What we want to do is we want to say, let us try and make our environment as language rich as possible. And so to go back to that um, a phrase that you said, you could say water, you could just say, oh, I think um, you're thinking I want water. And you can infer, you can just say, oh, you're thinking I want water. Uh Or you can say, you could say water, and that's perfectly fine as well. Um, But it's about thinking, helping children build functionality into their um, communication so it doesn't become an imitation. So one of the examples I often give is being in a restaurant in a foreign country where you don't speak the language. And if somebody says, what do you want? Um, there's not much from that sentence. If they say it in French, there's not much I can harvest from that sentence to tell them what I want. Whereas if someone, if the waiter says, oh, would you like, um, um, would you like the chicken or would you like the beef? Then I'm thinking, oh, right. I think I understand those words because he's pointed to them on the menu. Oh, I'm not quite sure. I'm going to go with the last thing he said. That sounds fine. And you, you know, to get yourself out of an embarrassing situation, you might say, oh, yes, I'll take the beef because um, they've given your model. 
um, mm-hmm. uh, and they've given you the final word. Did you want the chicken or the beef? And you can say, oh, you beef. Oh, I'll have the beef. Um, because, phew, I don't have to sit in embarrassed silence not being able to order. Um, and children want that little boost. They want that language boost. And part of language learning is, oh, I'm going to imitate the last thing you say. That is a typical part of development. Now, to go back to your question of what happens if they're pointing and they're not saying anything, is you want to validate that they are requesting and offer the forced choice and say it many times and maybe put it into a um, a sing song. Oh, you want water? Water, here comes the water, here comes the water, and put it into a melody they know so that, oh, I can wait, here comes a song. Oh, I can join in with the melody or I can sway in tune to the melody. Oh, I'm building that connection so that you're giving a child lots of other other ways to participate in interaction other than just the words. And unless in that situation there is something specifically going wrong, my expectation would be that words would be soon to come. It's so frustrating to spend the money and effort to buy your kids clothes just to have them grow out of the size within a week or have your kids complain that they itch, pinch, or just aren't comfortable. If you're with me on this, you've got to check out Posh Peanut. Their sensitive skin-friendly clothes are made from viscose from bamboo, stretch with your kid as they grow, and they're also made to last. Posh Peanut makes thoughtfully crafted, super cute clothing for kids and families. It is the softest thing, y'all. The design is all done in-house with different patterns and it came in the mail and I was like, oh my gosh, I want to wear this for myself every day. Their luxe women's pajamas and robes were all that I wanted to wear postpartum for nursing and hanging out on the couch with Mila. It helps so much that the fabric is breathable and chemical free, which means they're delicate against Mila's sensitive skin too. And I totally get why Posh Peanut is loved by over 1 million parents. Right now, Posh Peanut is offering our listeners 20% off your first order with promo code VILLAGE. Go to poshpeanut.com village and use promo code VILLAGE for 20% off your first order. That's poshpeanut.com village, promo code VILLAGE. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair uses a molecule called hypochlorous acid, which mimics our natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. We've been loving Active Skin Repair for all the cuts and scrapes that show up in the active toddler life. Sage loves that there's both the spray version, but also a cream version. He likes to get to choose which one he's going to do. He calls it the magic cream. And it's been so great for taking care of Mila's neck rash now that she's full on teething. Can we get a minute for a teething three and a half month old? What in the world? Active Skin Repair has thousands of five-star reviews And the ingredients so safe and clean, they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest. Keeping it simple with one soothing solution for all your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order, use code VILLAGE. That's www.activeskinrepair.com. Code VILLAGE for 20% off your order. 
that makes so much sense. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. One of the things that you, when you were talking about the, like being in, in a restaurant where someone would be speaking French to you and that feeling of embarrassment and um, be kind of being focused on that and not being able to even access language, even if it lives inside of you when you're having these hard feelings, um, is something that we kind of dive into a lot in my classroom. We're really focused on how our emotions play into our ability to communicate. And so uh, if a kid is crying, instead of saying, use your words while they're crying, we focus first on the emotion and helping them work through that emotion and really process it and identify it and get to the full processing of the emotion before we talk about why they're crying or what they need from there. Um, and I'd, I'd love to kind of chat about how this emotion plays into to language development because I know for, for us it's something we talk a lot with our college students about in terms of um, not asking kids to kind of rush through it to access their words because they often can't do that. They can't find those words until they've worked through what they're feeling. Um, can you speak to that with me at all? I would definitely um, try my best. I think that the language of emotion throughout the lifespan is tricky. It's uh, hard for grown-ups to talk about their feelings. And one of the things, the words that springs to mind when I'm thinking about language development and play and language development is the idea of um, things being in context. So children's le children learn things. They learn to play and talk in context when they've got physical objects around them. And so it's easy to label things. No it's no surprise that nouns are early words rather than um, adjectives or verbs. And so we can label things because we can see them, we can touch them. And that sensory system, I know it's a cat. It looks like a cat. It feels like a cat. It sounds like a cat. It's a cat. And I can know all, all manner of catness. Whereas I'm feeling sad is, I don't know, I just feel dreadful. I don't know what to do about this. I think I'm just going to cry. And so sometimes just dealing with the symptoms is a perfectly fine place to start. And to, um, going to language of feelings can be very abstract. And so taking it back to a noun. Um, so, for example, say if, if a child um, wanted a toy and someone else took it, um, we might think, oh, you're feeling jealous or you're feeling frustrated or you're feeling left out. Those are kind of hard, but you're saying, oh, you wanted the car. Oh, buddy, you wanted the car. I'm so sorry. Oh, come and have a hug. It's not your turn. You wanted the car. So you're kind of giving them that noun so they can focus on, yeah, that was kind of the root of the problem. All of the other stuff is is hard for me to process right now, but right now I can fix on, on the noun. And and so then you can you can try and talk through things in terms of nouns. The feelings are important, very important, but those words are going to be really hard for children to um to understand fully. Um, and through play we can do a lot of modeling of things that make us feel sad. So children will start to act out um uh, I have a, a client who is learning language and he likes me to act out that I'm crying. So I'm bo so mm. he'll hide a toy and I'll pretend it's lost and I'll cry. I'll cry for the toy and then he'll find it. And so he's 
he has only got a few nouns. He hasn't got many words, but he's already very uh, learning very expertly. Oh, there's some really um, complex stuff at play here, and I can be the I can be the hero, and I can make things better. And sometimes being playful about things being lost or daily events of um, toys being taken away, we can model that. We can model that and we can be the injured party and then they can be the hero. And that's quite a nice way because you can focus it through nouns, but then access some of the more abstract language because it's complicated. You know, as I said, grown-ups have a hard job working out why they're feeling sad. And I think play, um, through play development, we can see that children up to the age of about um, two, two years old still really need to have real objects and play with real objects. It's pretty hard for them to pretend that a beanbag is a cell phone and that they're making a call to someone. It's really hard for them to pretend that a, self, um, a beanbag is a bowl or a bag of chips and that they're eating them. It, that, um, we, they have to learn that. And that's called decontextual play. Um, and so they can only really use things in the pretend and in the abstract once they have a really robust sense of what those real words are. And so we have to make sure that children know what the real words for things are before they can start to pretend. And I think that emotional piece goes alongside the play and the language. Um, so we can sometimes we can go so far with how are you feeling? And we can start to label those Absolutely. feelings like we would label a cat or label water, but also go back to what can I do for you right now? Right now I can give you a tight squeeze. Right now I can give you a foot rub. Right now I can hold your hand. Um, and um, we can we can try and talk through some of that, but sometimes silence and just showing empathy can be the best thing to do as well. Absolutely. So one thing that we in, in our class will will label the emotion we think they're feeling, and then we will pair it with the object, essentially, right? Like, oh, I see that you look so mad. You were playing with that book. You want it back. And then we're working on, you know, building the, the coping strategies and being able to move on as they get older and kind of pair those. And now I have kiddos who are almost two and are able to say, I feel hungry or I feel shy or I feel mad. And I think that they, you know, I look at them six months ago who would just come in 15 minutes before lunch and start crying because they felt hungry and didn't know how to communicate that, right? So we would pair that for them every day. Oh, I see that you're crying. You're ready to eat. You feel really hungry and food isn't here yet. Um, and being able to give them that language about their emotions and how much progress we've kind of seen with that. Um, but what I think is important to highlight is that when a kid is uh, like throwing a tantrum or is having these big emotions, they often can't problem solve with us when they're in that space, right? So when I have a kid who is melting because their mom just left for work and they're crying, I will give them a hug and I'll help them feel calm first before we talk about what they're feeling. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I I think that um, it's 
being someone who likes to talk a lot, it has been um, a bigger journey for me in recognizing when the, when the power of silence can trump the power of words. And, mm. um, and I think that being emotionally attuned to a child and recognizing and showing empathy can be a really effective way that more than any words can. So sometimes when my children were having a meltdown, um, I would, I would just empathize and look mad myself. They don't know what their face looks like, but if I show empathy and go, Oh, you're mad and show it on my face rather than being mad with them. So one of the things I learned from a, a an amazing psychologist called Dan Hughes. He has, um, he's, uh, doesn't have a practice much now. I think he's sort of retiring, but anyway, he, um, uh, taught me something really valuable, which is the, um, modeling of that emotional affect is so important. And he, one of the examples he gives is that when an infant is crying, when you're changing their diaper, you don't. You might feel like, oh, I want to get this over and done with, but you don't get cross with the infant. You don't say, you know what, this is for your own good. I'm just doing it, and it's going to be over soon. And you don't use any of that language. You go immediately to empathy. Oh, oh, you don't like this, do you? And we somehow can lose that traction with older children and lose that first place of empathy. And I, I've learned that first place of empathy. Oh. Oh, you're feeling mad. I don't think I understand why. And this this works with my teenager. He'll come in and say something which seems very abrupt and rude. And and instead of instead of getting into an argument about the language he's used, he's just reflect back. Whoa, that was unexpected. That sounded really rude. You you it sounds like you're mad. And then offering an in, an invitation to talk about how they're feeling. And the way that you've described that playing out with the little ones is, you know, oh, mama's gone. Have a hug and just deal with the hug and deal with the empathy first. Because like you say, the words will come later. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, one thing I'd, I'd love to kind of dive into next is how to kind of get these toddlers to start producing words if they're not doing so, right? So if we get to say 18 months and we're still seeing that they're not producing the words, we're still seeing the pointing and the maybe like an eh sound, like mm -hmm. how, where do we go from there? How can we continue to really support that language to come so that they can not just communicate with us, but what we see in the classroom is being able to communicate with their peers too. Sure. I think that um, if you did have an 18-month-old who's not saying much at all and just pointing and using eh, like an open vowel, I would definitely first and foremost say that would be a good reason to refer to a speech pathologist. Um, I think that um, giving the child multiple opportunities and different ways to um, to make, to, to demonstrate agency so they're making a choice. And so going back to that, that example of, oh, did you want the block or water? Is bringing those two objects close by and having them touch them. Oh, you wanted water. So making that sort of physical connection. Oh, you are demonstrating you want that. You're making a selection. I think that um, when we're going to ask for something, we have to create a sentence in our mind. 
or we, when we're going to say a word, we have to have that word in our mind. We have to have a little part of our brain that represents that word. And we have to be able to rehearse it in our mind and then say it. And all of these skills, these cognitive skills happen in a nanosecond. And providing children an opportunity to practice those words in um, playful ways is a really good way of building language. So that's why song is so important. Early rhymes, early songs, the wheels on the bus. That's a great one because it's repeated. It's hooked to melody, so it makes it easier to understand. Um, we don't have to be able to say all the words. We can just join in with the final town at the end of all through the town. So I was working with a child yesterday and all he can say in wheels on the bus is joining with town at the end. That's great. He's, um, we'll want to expand that. So giving children um, playful ways to use language. And when you're playing with toys, give them just sounds to make. Oh, my train is um, going along the track. Woo woo. And it doesn't even have to be a ch ch. You can give them vowel sounds so that they can imitate vowel sounds. Um, so trying to embed sound play into your regular play is another nice way of doing it. Um, and also children love to watch other children. That's the first stage of learning to play, learning to communicate is that they are onlookers. And it's okay to, to stand by and be an onlooker with a quiet child and validate the onlooker role. Oh, you're watching and you can narrate some of that play that's going on. So if an onlooker child is, is, um, is silent, your first temptation might want to be to drag them into the play, but maybe being present with them in the onlooker role is just as valid um, and narrating it and um, talking about what's going on and enjoying what's going on at a distance and making and enjoying some observations, simple observations of what's going on and maybe imitate it where you are on the outskirts of the play and not being embedded in the play can be the first step for those quiet children. That's awesome. That's so helpful. So many awesome tips in there. Um, one thing that we incorporate at school a lot is sign language. We start it in our infant room, and then the kids in my room, in like the one-year-old room, a lot of them are, are using signs to communicate and eventually moving towards using signs and verbal language. And then usually by the two-year-old room, they're using mostly verbal language and have dropped the signs. Um, I, I think for us, like the fine motor development can come before the oral motor, right? So they can sign with their hands more before their mouth can say more. Uh, when would you suggest like starting sign language with kiddos? And I guess the expectation as well of when do we expect them to start repeating signs back to us? You know, that's a really good question. I think what we learn from um, the deaf community and children who were growing up in a manual language environment, so a exclusively signing environment is, as you say, those early signs and signing and babble signing. Even children growing up in a language, oral language environment, use uh, early gestures with their hands earlier than they would babble. So I think that you can start it from the get-go. You wouldn't, um, and you would want children to be um, imitating um, facial gestures, hand gestures from a very, from a relatively early age. 
So you'd want some of those early signs to be in terms of um, imitating, um, finger moving, you know, really early on for about six months. And then slowly children will build the understanding of, oh, this is a symbol system. My hand gesture is a symbol that represents something else. It's allowing one thing, a hand gesture, to stand for another. And that's really what la the language system is. So a gestural system is a, um, is a springboard into the other language. Obviously, manual language and actual sign language is a language of its own. So I think that I would probably want to call it gestural, gestural, um, gesturing rather than signing. I'd want to maybe draw the distinction because a manual language, a sign language, is a language of its own. It has a, um, it has its own oh. syntax. It has its own grammar. So what we're using is we're using an enhanced gestural system with children. Um, unless we are fluent in sign language. Um, yeah, that's so, a good distinction. Um, so it would be like me, I have rudimentary understanding of a couple of European languages and I might playfully throw in some words that seem fun, but I'm certainly not using French or German or Italian. I'm not, I'm not using those languages, I'm just using the odd word here and there. And so we're not yeah, using gestures. So, so that, I, I think that it's just a... Um, a nerdy technical point, but I think that using gestures and signs as a springboard into language is a really valuable, very valuable thing to do because what you're doing is you're engaging all sensory systems then touch and um, uh, movement and sound and, um, um, and vision. And so, what's so lovely is that. A child might not be able to imitate a sound, but they might be able to move their hand at a time when you're using a hand gesture. And so you can reinforce that. Oh, you're saying, you know, a classic one would be saying bye-bye or wanting a drink or, um, um, you know, asking for a particular, wanting milk, for example. And, um, and so even a flicker of a hand movement, you can then shape into, oh, you want milk. Um, so I think it's easier to shape something that a child can see their hands doing because we never see our mouth doing anything. So I think that you're building that multisensory awareness, which I think is really helpful to overcome some of those early frustrations. Yeah, absolutely. So six months is awesome because that's actually the number that I had in mind that we typically start with. Um, and then when would we expect to see them, if we say we start at six months signing to them consistently, when could we expect to see them kind of respond with signs or copy our signs? Well, I think that we wouldn't want, um, for children who are, we understand to be typically developing and growing up in an oral environment, we'd always want to be pairing the sign with the word. We would never want to be signing without the word. So um, we might see a hybrid kind of response of a hand gesture plus a vocalization. So you might see um, peripheral hand gestures, so a sign that looks like milk. It's, it's um, building that representation. So a child learning, oh, this hand movement is a proxy, it's a stand-in for milk. It's a symbol for milk. And so um, children, the symbol for milk, does, which um, in the signing system that I'd be more aware of would be like milking a cow. Now six-month-olds don't know anything about milking cows, but it's, so it's an ar arbitrary hand movement. Um, but they... Um, 
they will start to associate the meaning and it's for us to through repetition and multiple exposures to that child and giving them lots of opportunity to practice that they will start to build up that meaning so you really would expect them maybe using some of those signs between eight and ten months um for children who've had lots of exposure to signs but it doesn't sort of happen overnight it happens over this mm-hmm. sort of gradual um building up of a shared meaning of, of a, a sign which you're then yeah. linking to the word too right Awesome. That's, I think it's helpful for for some people to have a timeline, right? Of like, all right, how? What's the what's the reasonable expectation for this? Like, do I do it for a month and I expect them to do it back, or is it more of a three to four month thing? Um, I've had, had some parents that are just like, hey, this is where we are. Like, when will this change? And not that they need it to change tomorrow. They just want to know, like, all right, what's my expectation here? And I think that that's something with these gestures that is is helpful to know, like. It's not going to be repeated tomorrow, but if you keep doing it, this is what we're working toward. Think of it like this. You wouldn't not talk to your child and say to yourself, well, around about six months, I would really want them to start babbling in consonants. So around about six months, I'm going to see if they can start to babble, but I'm not going to babble. I'm not going to start by babbling to them. You would, you would always, from the minute they're born, from before they're born, you're talking to them. You're tapping on your belly. You're playfully using song. You are, and from the minute they're born, they're hearing playful use of sounds and language. And so that's how they get to an end point. Well, not even an end point, but if you like their first toe on the rung of um, real words, let's say roughly round about 12 months, just for a general guideline, it doesn't happen at one year of age with no precursor. You've done lots of that groundwork. And so you need to do a lot of groundwork with the symbols too and the Mm -hmm. signs and the gestures. So you would start from the get-go that you're saying that, oh, you, you know, so that I would say that there isn't, there isn't a beginning time. It's, it starts from the minute they're born. And you yeah. might diminish, you will diminish the signs once language takes over, but you would definitely be incorporating those signs from birth. Um, but you're absolutely right. You're not going to expect a sign to kick in on one exposure. It needs to be embedded in functionality. So they're only going to use, say, milk when it when milk is in their sight or when it's time for milk. They're not going to talk about milk in the abstract say at bedtime, mm-hmm. oh, do you remember when you had milk earlier on today? They're not going to understand milk in that context. They're going to be very linked to that context. So it goes back to that contextual play. Children learn words in context. And so using those signs in context over and over and over again is what's going to encourage them to use signs in context. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a good the kind of thing to throw out there in general. I feel like, you know, when kids learn new words, even we'll... Uh, trying to have them like perform their party tricks uh, kind of like you yes. said it's a family gathering where we're like oh she can do x she can sing happy birthday sing happy birthday to grandpa and they don't say anything <laughs> and yes. we're like oh no party tricks now and this child is probably like what's going on it's it's not grandpa's birthday is it what, what why would i be singing that now absolutely so children are keenly aware of context and um, so they need to know that they're using language um, and and doing something 
that's worthwhile. If if you can engage them in something playful, they'll most likely um, do all sorts of things in a playful environment. Whereas when they're feeling like you described being asked to perform, then um, that doesn't feel so comfortable. It's like mm-hmm. um, turning up at a party and someone saying, oh, oh, meet, you know, meet Alyssa. She's hilarious. Oh, she tells great jokes. Alyssa, tell them a joke. Make them laugh. Mm-hmm. And you're suddenly on the spot and thinking, oh, well, it's not the right moment. And I don't really know these people. And, oh, gosh, I don't know my audience yet. And how can I make them laugh? You feel on the spot. So children can feel like that too um and i think that um one of the really important things about the learning of language is that it has to happen uh, it, choosing your moment can be really important so you described having large and small groups and reducing the external expectations on children in larger groups versus smaller groups so knowing that oh, this is a child who needs more one-on-one time right now. And that's when they're going to talk. And maybe we can bring a child over for one interaction and then go back to being just one-on-one adult child again. That's really what they need. Um, Rather than thinking, okay, you said you sang wheels on the bus with me. All right, now join the group. You did it once. No, we need to do things over and over and over again um, and to help children feel comfortable. this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Being back to work after maternity leave has been so good and frankly, so hard. I love what I do and I missed collaborating with my team while I was out and it's been a tough transition. The combination of a packed schedule and still being the milk machine for Mila Bean, it's hard to juggle everything. I feel so grateful for my weekly therapy hour. Sometimes I'm just holding so much and I need a safe space to let it out and get it off my chest. I've noticed that when I don't release it, it comes out anyway, but usually in ways that aren't aligned with how I want to show up in the world. BetterHelp is such a convenient, flexible option for parents who just can't take the travel time to get to an in-person therapy visit. It's entirely online. You can show up in your jammies, always a win in my book, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you're on your way to feeling heard. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash voices today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash voices. Hormone Harmony is an all-in-one hormonal balancing solution for women of all ages. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormone changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Hormone Harmony is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put your life on hold, like hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all these things. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like yourself again. 
That's what women mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code VILLAGE at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code VILLAGE for 15% off today. Yes, thank you for that. I, I think it's really important and it's a good reminder for me too. I mean, there are definitely things in here that I've been listening to. I'm like, oh, yes, I have to remember to take this back with me. Uh, it makes so much sense. Uh, another question that I have is at what point do we move on to like focusing on articulation? Like in, in my work, I spend so much time like building language and, and this communication, but I'm not necessarily like correcting how they say a word or helping them, you know, if they're not saying the end sound, um, but we're counting B as banana, right? Like at what point are we yeah. helping build that articulation? That is a great question. Um, a lot of speech therapists, when they're thinking about a template for um, overall language development, they tend to split it into three main areas. <clears throat> and the first one is um, the content of language or the meaning of language. How meaningful is what the child's saying? So if they're saying ba and you know it means banana, then you have a shared meaning and that's fine. And if they're asking for a ba, a banana, when they're hungry, when there's a banana on the table, then that's great. It's that it's meaningful and they're using it in the right way. But the structure of the word or the form of the word is not quite there. And I always um, am much more interested in helping children to develop their the meaningful aspect of their communication um, and focusing on that before I focus on the sounds or the articulation. Because we know that children um, don't start talking with very clear language. So we'd be quite happy for a... a um, a one-year-old to say but for bottle or baba for bottle but we'd be less happy if our two-year-old is saying that we'd want them to be using different sounds and so I think the way to um, help with that is firstly to label your world and make sure that you're using the nouns so they're exposed to a lot of nouns um, and not slipping into using lots of, of um, pronouns oh you want it oh there you go they uh, handing a drink. There you go. Enjoy. There you are. We use phrases like that all the time with older children and adults. But with those young children, there's your water. There it is. There's your water. And repeating it so they're hearing the word lots of time. Times is really important. But um, in terms of sound development, we, instead of correcting them, you want to be um, just giving them really clear models and modeling the word that you're wanting to model and putting at the end of the sentence so that children can tune into the word you've put on um, a pedestal. It's You're showcasing it. Um, so offering them um, strong models is really important. And sometimes playing dumb if it's confusing. So let's say they um, want to say, um, let's say they're asking for a car but they're saying tar instead of car, you could um, you could say, oh, wait, wait, is it a tar? And they'll let them know, no, it's not a tar, it's a car. You know, and you can, you're not doing it, you're doing it in a playful way. So you're not saying, mm -hmm. no, it's not a car. Until you say car, you're not going to get the car. You're not going to, um, I know you would never do that, but I'm being exaggerating, I mean, exaggerating it, but 
you wouldn't want to put the child in a place of feeling corrected, but you want to put them in a place where, oh, you're offering me a wrong version and a right version close together so I can compare them. Um, and, um, and just being playful with your, with your words and saying, oh, here comes the car, oops, car, and making their error. So that, but uh, and then them watching you correct yourself. So you're exposing them to tar and car, so that as long as it's in a playful game and making them laugh about it, so that they're not feeling singled out, but then they're having an opportunity to hear the words in relief of one another, so that they can build up a um, a distinction. Much in the same way that if I went to a supermarket, I might I might look at an apple. And I might not be able to label what particular variety of apple it is. But if I've got two apples there and someone says, oh, this is a gala, this is a pink lady. Which one do you want? I'll go, oh, I'll have the pink lady. Oh, you want the pink lady? You want the gala? No, pink lady. Gotcha. Whereas if someone said to me, okay, you're walking into the supermarket, what variety of apple are you going to pick up? You'll think, oh, I don't know what it is, but I'll know when I see it. And so then that I'll know when I hear it is also going to be a valuable lesson for those little ones. So at what like age kind of do we start doing that? Or is it not as much of an age and more just like a development when they get to this stage? You know, at what point it, am I saying like, all right, I'm going to really focus on this, I feel like, or or is it something I'm always doing, I guess? I think it's something you're always doing. I think that you're going to be expecting a two-year-old to be saying tar for car. You're going to be less likely to be expecting a three-year-old to say tar for car. Some still will be, but um, a K sound, like a letter K, that's going to become like a T for, or a D for some children. That's typical, typically developing. But around about three years of age, children that you see every single day should be about between 60 and 80% intelligible to you. You should understand what they're saying 60 to 80% of the time. So on a, um, so if you find yourself as a parent or as a caregiver not really understanding what your child is saying or realizing, golly, I am the only one who knows what my kid is saying, then you definitely would want to see a speech pathologist. Um, but you can be playful with sounds as well. And you can think of um, uh, sounds to include in play. For example, we know, oh, the snake says and that's great because the letter S, the hissy sound, gets a nice little showcase all of its own. That's the snake sound. Well, you can invent all sorts of different sounds. So I'm working with a kiddo at the moment who doesn't really use many k sounds. And so he loves rocket ships. And one of the things I'm doing with him is, oh, your rocket ship is flying in the air. And he'll make a flying sound. Oh, mine's flying too. Oh, no, it's broken. K -k -k crash. And so my breaking, my rocket breaking sound is a k sound so that, oh, this is a thing. It's a sound. Um, and this is the sound and I can practice it on my own. And so for those children that you're finding who are less easy to understand, you could find a playful way of incorporating that sound into their play. So they might say done for sun. Oh, dundine for sunshine. But they know that the snake sound says and they can say it on their own. So you think, wow, they can say the on their own, because I know that when we play zoos, they can say the snake sound, but they say dundine. And so you can then say, huh, sunshine, I can hear that snake sound. 
you don't ask them to say it, but you just mention it casually. Huh, I can hear the snake sound. A bit like me incorporating a breaking rocket ship sound. Oh, k- 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 broken. Um, then I, um, oh, um, now with a two-year-old, I may not say it, but with a three-year-old, I might say, ha, huh, crash. Oh, there's that breaking sound, k- k- crash. So you give some way in a playful sense of showcasing a sound that you want the child to be able to say. But I think the important take-home message would be that you don't want to be overtly correcting them. You don't want to say, no, it's not Dundine, it's sunshine, because they would say it right if they could. Children don't make speech errors just to annoy us. They do it because they haven't yet learned to do it. Uh, you know, they're not doing it to um, to frustrate you. And so they, they need a little, they need an extra rung on that ladder, ladder built in. And that would be, hey, let's um, let's play play with some language. And you can do it by playing with Play-Doh. Oh, I'm going to make some holes in my Play-Doh with a little dowel rod. Oh, my my machine goes like this. Oh, my machine goes like this, so that you're incorporating sound play into, um, you know, into everyday activities. Amazing. I feel like you just threw so much amazing information at me. Because um, I always kind of saw it as this progression of like, we'll build the language. And then once these words are coming, because I feel like once kids start producing words a lot of the time, it just like, it's like unleashing the floodgates. So like then you just start to hear a wave of words kind of come through. Um, and then after that, then we work on articulation, but I hadn't really thought of it as like something we're really always working on. Um, no, it's, it's definitely baked in from the beginning. Um, and children who are effective in their um, sound development are children who have been very receptive to all the sounds around them. So thinking of children who might have um, a lot of ear infections, children who are not hearing individual sounds as clearly, we might not know that. We might think, oh, my child has lots of ear infections. Wow, they've had four sets of antibiotics this year because of an ear infection. You you might want to think, oh, I need to, uh, I, I might be expecting my child to have less distinct sounds. Not all children do. But you might want to use playful, um, you know, sound play and say, oh, I'm really going to showcase some sounds in my play. And, um, you know, just rolling out Play-Doh and making a sound while you're doing it. Oh, I'm a I'm making you know, I'm making snakes and make a snake sound. Oh, I'm making peas, um, little green peas you know, and uh, attaching a sound and children will want to imitate it. And even the children who maybe are less vocal might think, wow, gosh, I can imitate a per and they might join in more than um, than talking. They might just like the sound play because, you know, that's a very early part of babbling is they're just enjoying their, their sounds and babbling back and forth is sound play. So you're already doing it. You're already baking it in early on. Maybe you're not thinking, oh, I'm doing some I'm doing some articulation prep here. But that's precisely what you are doing. Right. No, that makes total sense. That makes so much sense. Um, I, my last question for you is, like you've mentioned a few times throughout our conversation, uh, that you know, if 
if you weren't hearing, um, if your child was still pointing and maybe saying eh at 18 months but didn't have an, a lot of words or any words, that you would want to turn to an SLP. And so I guess at, what are the markers that we would say, okay, if, if we're not seeing X at about this age, we might want to look into how we can intervene. So are you asking me for sort of rough ages of when the red flag? Yeah, are? and like what we're, yeah, like what we're hmm. looking for rough ages. Well, I think from starting very early on, if you're not seeing a child engaging in babble by eight months, eight, you really want to, um, and they are completely silent or, or silent most of the time, then you would want to think, well, in what context are they babbling and how can we do more of that? But I'd say if they're not really babbling at eight to 10 months, you would want to um, have families talk to their pediatrician and say, or is there something else going on here? Let's check the hearing again. Let's um, let's check for other things like are there any feeding issues? Are they are they fussy about textures? Um, that sort of thing. Um, and then if you have a child who's babbling or has been through a babbling phase, but they are not really getting into words and just pointing and saying eh, by um, 15 months they really haven't got about five to ten words. You, if they got no words at 15 months, I think you'd really want to um, have a, a speech pathologist take a look as well and just try and get the child into um, uh, have an evaluation so that a speech pathologist can look at all of those early communication developmental markers. Um, by the age of two, so now we're sort of leaping up to two, you really would like children to have about 50 words. Um, and starting to combine um, in simple ways like, you know, more juice, my, mm -hmm. you know, my plus noun, or if mummy's gone, mummy gone, or daddy gone, that kind of thing. You'd want some of those early phrases to be kicking in and combining. Um, so that would be take us up to about two. Um, and then leaping up to about three, if you find that the child is not using sentences with a verb in them, a simple sentences, um, like, um, um, uh, I want juice, mummy, then you'd want, you know, you really want, you'd want more sophisticated language than that at three. So they're really just limiting themselves to one or two or even just three words sentences then that would be a sign to have a speech therapist look and of course if you can't understand the child if anything they say is unclear um, that would be important that's sort of from the word side of things if you find that your child is pretty isolated and they're not really engaged in play at any stage from eight months beyond I'd say you'd want to um You'd, you'd want to be thinking about some of those social aspects, not just the words, but the social aspects of communication. Um, looking for early signs of peekaboo play, that sort of thing, is a really good early indicator of that reciprocity. Um, so that sort of covers, gave you a lot of information there. Sorry, yeah. I hope it was no, useful. that's awesome. I think it's really helpful. I think there's, I get a lot of questions of like, my kid's not doing this yet. Is this something I should be concerned about? And I feel like that kind of gives a general outline for for families to know, like, all right, this is what we're working toward, um, and this yeah. is what to keep an eye on at certain ages. 
I think one of the things that could be tricky for families if they've got a toddler, a, um, a child who is becoming a toddler and they're not saying much, is um, that we, one of our temptations is to say, well, if I talk to them a lot, then they'll talk back. And that's generally speaking a really good way to go talking to our children singing to them a lot reading to them a lot playing with them a lot and um, and being there with them spending time with them is really important one of the things that can flip um, on its head a little is that if we are so worried about our child not talking we can tend to ask them lots of questions and if we ask lots of questions then it kind of falls upon the child to answer and that can sometimes put the child in a position where they're always being the responder. So if we think about a conversation, some people initiate, some people respond. And a nice balanced conversation is that we take it in turns to initiate and respond. And if we're always approaching our child and asking them questions, then we, um, we're kind of setting our own agenda. So one of the hardest things to do but really very effective is to really just observe your child see what they're interested in and wait for them to initiate and that might not be a word it might be them playing with their toy and them looking up at you and looking back down at the toy and that's an initiation so you can then label what they're doing oh oh you're interested in the bunny so that um rather than a question we might say is are you playing with the bunny and they might go mm like yes, obviously. Um, and if we ask yes, no questions, they're only going to say yes or no. So helping the child to be the initiator and, and being silent can be a nice way for them to initiate and then offering well-timed words. I'm going to talk about what you're playing with right now and making my making my model nice and short. So that I'm right, not without saying, expecting that like verbal response necessarily. Absolutely. Because they might, yeah. you might say, oh, bunny. And then they might make the bunny hop. That's their turn. They took a turn. Yeah, bunny's hopping. And then they'll look at you. Oh, right. Okay. We're having a back and forth here now. My part is nonverbal. Your part is verbal. But we're having an interaction. And then that will encourage them to think, oh, you're, you're talking about what I'm interested in rather than, oh, oh, you want to play? Come over here, let's play Legos. Well, no, actually, I was happy putting my bunny to bed. That's what I was doing. I want to play, but I want to play what I'm playing, not what you think I want to play. Um, and without language, children have less opportunity to, um, to demonstrate some agency. So we want to try and give them back that agency um, and let them initiate, especially with those littlies. And part of that can be being down at their level and lying on your belly and being at eye level with them. And that can really give you a lot of valuable information about, oh, I see where your eye is glancing. Oh, you're looking at the bunny. I'm going to talk about the bunny. You're not interested in the truck that I've bought over. You know, so that you're really following their lead. I love that. Thank you so much. I feel like we just gone through so much information and I'm excited about all of it. I have so many takeaways. I like jotted notes for myself to remember as, as I head back into work on Monday with my tiny humans. Um, before we kind of sign off here, could you uh, recommend any resources that you love that if there were parents who are feeling like they need extra support or want to learn more could turn to? Absolutely. My 
100% first go-to place is something called the Hannon Organization. And that's not, doesn't sound how it's spelt. It's H-A-N-E-N dot org, O-R-G. And it's a speech therapy um, organization up in Canada based in Toronto. And they have fabulous resources. They offer training to speech pathologists. So I have done a lot of their training. And they have... Um, um, daily and weekly little communication tips and all sorts of learning resources and they are a font of knowledge for families who just want to build a language rich environment for their child or for parents who are worried about their child who's not talking um, and also for lots of other good they, they are a springboard into lots of other great resources so that is my um, that's my first go-to place that's awesome. Thank you so much. I will definitely link to that in our show notes. And then lastly, where could people connect with you if they had any follow-up questions or anything after this? So I work at a um, combined OT and speech clinic at called OTA, the Kumar Center. And I'm one of the speech pathologists there. And so people can connect through the website there, which is OTA, the Kumar Center. Um, awesome. under, I, also, I think I'm you'll need to link it because I know that um, the website I'm a little embarrassed now I know that it has a, a, a URL that's a little different than I just told you so uh, connect if you google OTA uh -huh. the Kumar Center then it will come up okay awesome I will I will definitely link that um, in the show notes Sarah thank you so much for chatting with me I every time I've talked with you I feel like I just learned everything all over again and so much more to take away um, thanks so much for joining me today oh it's my pleasure thank you Alyssa thanks for tuning in to Voices of Your Village check out the show notes for this episode and all past episodes at www.seedandso.org slash podcast if you love the show take two minutes to leave a review and spread the love thanks for joining our village Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.